power on. Hi, friends, and welcome to the Pop Culture Retro-Rama Podcast. I'm your host, Vic Sage, and I'm here to share memories, thoughts, and information on all manner of retro-related properties. Movies. Are you telling me you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? Music. I want my MTV. All right. Comic books. These ain't your daddy's comic books, fanboy. And toys. It's Castle Grayskull. And it's mine. Broadcasting to you from the depths of the pop culture retro-rama vault. So, come join us, won't you? Now, you're playing with power. Hi there, friends. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Pop Culture Retrorama Podcast. I'm your host, Vic Sage, and it's been since March since we've last had the chance to chat. If you've been kind enough to follow the Diary of an Arcade Employee or Saturday Frights Podcast, you know that we're doing the shows in seasons. Twelve episodes, one every week, for twelve straight weeks before moving on to the next podcast. Although, the Saturday Frights podcast will be going a little bit longer as we are nearing its 100th episode. The reason for this particular pop culture retrorama episode is not only to remind all of you listeners that the show is very much still in production, but to provide you with a taste of the new direction that the podcast is going to be taking in its second season. In the show's first season, I tackled the likes of The Banana Splits, The Shadow, The Blues Brothers, Richard Matheson's I Am Legend, and the new Scooby-Doo movies, to name a few. Taking a movie, cartoon, comic book, novel, music, or toy line that I felt was worthy of a deep dive and sharing it with all of you listeners. That is not going to change in the least with the second season of the podcast. In fact, on this episode, I will be tackling the late 70s Godzilla Saturday morning animated series by Hanna-Barbera. The change in the new season of the podcast is that I will no longer be the sole host on the show. I am joined by some of my fellow pop culture retro-rama colleagues from the site, who will be tackling short subjects of their very own. Think of this podcast as something similar to a retro and pop culture related magazine, with my colleagues and I giving you a scattershot of informative as well as entertaining subjects. Before I begin to discuss Godzilla, though, I want to recognize Earl Green, who you will hear later in this episode, for coming up with the idea for this new direction for the pop culture retrorama podcast. I think it's going to be pretty neat and something special. So, Without further ado, enjoy this special episode or preview for the second season of the Pop Culture Retrorama Podcast. On the Saturday morning of September 9th of 1978, I can tell you where I was. Sitting in front of the black and white television set at my great-grandmother's house with a big bowl of Czech cereal as the Godzilla Power Hour began. The show was an hour-long series that featured two half-hour episodes. 
The first half of the hour presented the Godzilla cartoon, with the second featuring Janna of the Jungle, the latter focusing on a sort of modern-day version of Tarzan, a series that was created by the iconic Doug Wildey of Johnny Quest, The Herculoids, and Return to the Planet of the Apes fame, to say nothing of his work for Atlas Comics, before it became Marvel Comics, of course. I'll devote a future episode of the Pop Culture Retrorama podcast to Johnny Quest. By the time that the Godzilla Power Hour premiered on NBC, I was already a fan of everyone's favorite daikaiju, thanks to a few of the Saturday Night Late Late movies on a local TV station. To say nothing of the fact that Godzilla was the enemy, or at the very least, featured in Mattel's Shogun Warriors toy line. Godzilla! You can pretend Godzilla turns a mighty castle into a pile of sand. Don't do it, Godzilla! You control Godzilla's ugly tongue. You can make him stomp, pound his tail, pretending he strikes it all in his way. You can launch Godzilla's claw for the final blow. We did it! What will Godzilla do next? It's up to you. Godzilla with a claw that launches some assembly required from the Shogun Warrior Collection by Mattel. That impressive 24-inch toy was one that I was never fortunate enough to lay my hands on. Although, I can remember the Christmas morning when I found that I had both the Great Mazinga and Dragoon under the tree. I remember it well because I spent most of that morning with my father firing plastic axes, missiles, and swords at each other in the middle of the living room floor. Another reason I was excited for the Godzilla Power Hour was because in the spring of that year, the local drive-in had a marathon of Godzilla films. Four in total, including 1962's King Kong vs. Godzilla, Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla, Terror of Mechagodzilla, and Godzilla vs. Gigan. Although, as I understand it, here in the States it was released originally as Godzilla on Monster Island. It was literally the only thing we could talk about that afternoon during lunch. Being all of six years old, however, and always against the idea of a nap in the afternoon, I was only able to make it through the first two features before my father decided to call it a night. Godzilla has more than earned the moniker of King of the Monsters. Although, in 2021, we will see that title challenged in Godzilla vs. King Kong, a film that I am dying to even see a teaser trailer for. The character of Godzilla proved extremely popular with his introduction to the world beginning with Ashiro Honda's 1954 cinematic masterpiece, Gojira, produced by Toho Studios. Godzilla was obviously intended to be a metaphor wrapped in a monster picture of the horrors of atomic weaponry that Japan was understandably still haunted by. In fact, as quoted from Steve Rifle and Ed Godzesquiz's 2017 book, Ashiro Honda, A Life in Film from Godzilla to Kurosawa, the filmmaker was quoted on his 1954 film, quote, If our hearts were not in it 100%, it would not have worked. We wanted the monster to possess the terrifying characteristics of an atomic bomb. This was our approach without any reservations, end quote. It is sort of understandable when two years later it was released here in the States as Godzilla King of the Monsters and that it had to be slightly altered. The rights were sold by Toho Studios to producer Joseph Edward Levine for $25,000, who paid for some additional shooting of new footage for the film with Raymond Burr and excising a lot of the message of the original film. 
Like I said, it is sort of understandable, and while I obviously think Gojira is the superior picture, there's no doubt that this 1956 version of Godzilla helped to catapult the character into the mainstream for monster film fans. Having said all of that, however, even by 1978, that is a tough character to tackle and attempt to bring to children's television. Although the popularity of Godzilla surely was an enticing proposition for the likes of Hanna-Barbera. How many monster kids beside myself were ready to plop down in front of the TV to see a Godzilla cartoon? Quite a bit, it would turn out, as the series managed to be shown on Saturday mornings on NBC in one form or another until 1981. The idea for this first Godzilla animated series came about thanks to Joseph Barbera, who was quoted in another Steve Rifle book, this one from 1998, entitled Japan's Favorite Mon Star, the unauthorized biography of the Big G. Barbera said on the series' origins and difficulties on getting it on the air, quote, My job back then was to dig up new characters, new ideas, new shows, and I had wanted to do Godzilla for a while. I liked the monster thing and the way it looked, and I thought we could do a lot with it. So I contacted Henry Saperstein, who was a very good friend, and we got talking about it. Then there was an executive at the network who wanted to get into the act and urged us to lighten the story up. So I came up with the character Godzuki, who was like his son. The show had a sort of father-son relationship, which we had done before on shows like Augie Doggy and Doggy Daddy and Johnny Quest. The problem with the show was simply this. When they start telling you in standards and practices, don't shoot any flame at anybody, don't step on any buildings or cars, then pretty soon they've taken away all the stuff he represents. That became the problem. To maintain a feeling of Godzilla and at the same time cut down everything that he did. We managed to get a fair show out of it. It was okay. Godzuki kind of got the kids going. End quote. While Doug Wildey would act as a producer on the Godzilla animated series, with Joseph Barbera and William Hanna acting as executive producers, the development for the series is credited to Dick Robbins and Dwayne Poole, who served as story editors. Robbins and Poole were no strangers to Saturday morning television, the former having a hand in the 60s Spider-Man animated series, as well as Super Friends, Yogi's Art Clark, and Scooby's Laugh Olympics, to name a few, with Poole working on the likes of The Great Grape Ape Show, Electra Woman and Dina Girl, and the all-new Super Friends Hour, to point out just a few. It would appear that the way to handle pulling off a Godzilla animated series in 1978 was to shift the spotlight from everyone's favorite daikaiju to a more manageable crew of scientists and adventurers, aboard a hydrofoil research vessel called the Calico. The 26 episodes fall into the Monster of the Week category, much like with, say, the iconic Kolchak the Night Stalker series. No episode was actually connected to the following or previous in regards to the story or lasting impact. The crew of the Calico, while doing research, bump into something monstrous and huge, like with the first episode, entitled The Firebird where a giant winged beast that is vaguely like Rodan emerges from a volcano with designs to lay eggs in the Arctic. Obviously, the threat of multiple firebirds hatching and flying around the globe is too great. So, using an electronic device, the members of the scientific team can summon Godzilla up from the depths of the ocean to combat the threat each week. The show never attempts to explain where the electronic device came from. 
I mean, does Godzilla have a chip in his head or something? And I suppose when you get down to it, it's not really needed, especially for those the show was aiming at. We just accepted it and moved on. Godzilla definitely received screen time in the cartoon. The show is named after him, after all. But sort of like with the Rankin and Bass, the King Kong show, or Frankenstein Jr. animated series, the character is basically called in to save the day and do some fighting. A big change in the character is that Godzilla no longer possesses atomic breath, but can now breathe fire. Although, as you will remember from that quote from Barbera, the showrunners were limited in how they could use that ability. In addition, Godzilla could emit a kind of laser beam blast from his eyes at times. Perhaps, coupled with the ability to breathe fire, the writers felt the two powers equaled the devastating atomic breath from the films. Godzuki was created as a sort of sidekick to both the crew of the Calico and Godzilla. A young version of Godzilla with a capability of short flight or gliding thanks to wings under his arms. And when you get down to it, the character is a lovable bumbler. A character that is equally frightened by and enamored with Godzilla. Although it's pretty evident that feeling isn't returned. Godzuki tries to breathe fire too, but more often than not, only manages to blow a smoke ring. At the very least, he is able to generate a weak roar that is able to call Godzilla to his aid. You might be interested to know that Godzilla's cries of anger and triumph were provided by none other than Ted Cassidy, Lurch of the Addams Family fame, who is no stranger to voice work on all manner of animated series. Captain Majors, we better call Godzilla! That's right, Captain. It's our only chance. Godzuki was voiced by the legendary Don Messick, who provided the voices of the likes of Scooby-Doo, Papa Smurf, Dr. Benton Quest, and even Bandit from Johnny Quest, to name just a few of the 284 acting credits he amassed before his passing in 1997. Now get up on deck! <laughs> The crew of the Calico is made up of Captain Carl Majors, who was voiced by Jeff David. Al Eisenman voiced the young Pete Darian, who befriends Godzuki, with Brenda Thompson providing the voice of Pete's mother, Dr. Quinn Darian. It was Hilly Hicks who voiced Brock Borden, a research assistant to Dr. Quinn and the first mate to Captain Majors. A total of eight episodes of Godzilla had aired before NBC decided on a change in format and title. The Godzilla Power Hour became the Godzilla Super 90, obviously gaining an additional 30-minute program. In this case, it was reruns of Johnny Quest. Then, in September of 1979, the second season episodes ceased being part of a package and were aired simply as Godzilla. Well, at least for two months when it became packaged again as the Godzilla Globetrotters Adventure Hour, and would stay like that until September of 1980, when all 26 episodes would be packaged together in the Godzilla Dynomutt Hour until November of 1980, where it would change to the Godzilla Hong Kong Fooey Hour. This title and packaging was kept until May of the following year, when once again it would strike out on its own with reruns of the two seasons. As I understand it, the first season has been collected and released on DVD, although there has never been a release for the second season. 
Maybe when Godzilla vs. King Kong is released in May of 2021, enough interest will be generated to warrant that second season being released. And I think that is about all I have to share with you on 1978's Godzilla. While not exactly being the Godzilla we fans of the film series would recognize, the truth is it was a fun show, if formulaic. At the very least, I think the showrunner should be lauded for attempting to create an animated Godzilla series in the first place. And now, without further ado, I believe it's time for our next segment, which focuses on another memorable bit of entertainment from 1978. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Queen. Hey everybody, Rockford J here with a musical interlude in this installment of the Pop Culture Retro-Rama. And in keeping with the theme of good things from 1978, I'm going to talk about the song Don't Stop Me Now by my favorite band, Queen. John Deacon, Roger Taylor, Freddie Mercury, and Brian May. Don't Stop Me Now appears on 1978's Jazz, the same album as the double A-side single Fat Bottom Girls and Bicycle Race. Don't Stop Me Now was written by Freddie Mercury and was recorded in France in August of 1978. The song was released as a single in the UK on January 5, 1979, and in the US on February 20, 1979, and was supported by a straightforward performance music video that was filmed in Belgium while the band was on tour. Based around piano, bass, and drums with strategic slices of catchy guitar and a big inviting chorus, the song's theme is no more complicated than the joys of feeling good and having fun. If you want to have a good time, just give me a call. Don't stop me Cause now. I'm a good time. Don't stop me yes, now. I'm a good time. I don't want to stop at all. Don't Stop Me Now was a top 10 hit in the UK, reaching number 9 on the singles charts. But then the US peaked only at number 86, and over the years, the song floated into the vague middle of the band's catalog. That is, until it was memorably used in the zombie comedy Shaun of the Dead in 2004, and its fortunes and pop culture profile have risen ever since. The song was voted the third favorite Queen song of all time in 2014 by readers of Rolling Stone magazine and has appeared on American Dad, Glee, and Doctor Who. And viewers of the show Top Gear voted it the best driving song ever, whatever that means. The song has achieved double platinum status in the UK and triple platinum status in the United States, selling over 3 million copies. A slightly reworked version of the song and the original music video play over the end credits of the 2018 Queen biopic Bohemian Rhapsody, and it continues to feature in the set list of Queen's recent tours with Adam Lambert. So until next time, if you're feeling like a tiger, defying the laws of gravity, if you're a racing car passing by like Lady Godiva, if you want to have a good time, good time, and have a ball, put on Don't Stop Me Now and go, go, go. There's no stopping you. Hey there, pop culture retro-rama fans. This is Ashley Thomas, a.k.a. The Nerdy Blogger. While I hope to bring you 
more cheerful news in upcoming pop culture retrorama podcast segments, I unfortunately have a bit of sad news to pass along to you today. Norm Spencer, the voice behind X-Men team leader Scott Summers, aka Cyclops, passed away on August 31st of this year. We just can't catch a break in 2020, can we? Like many kids of the 80s and 90s, I got my introduction to comic books through my cartoons. One of my favorites growing up was the 90s animated X-Men series. It was a solid series with a great cast, an incredible theme song, and great, great job adapting the X-Men comics to the TV. And to be frank, it's the main reason the X-Men will always be my favorite superhero team, was because of my love for the 92 X-Men series. One of the things I loved the most about that series was that it told a cohesive story. Now, sure, there were standalone or mutant of the week type stories, but even in the one-off episodes, there was a continuous storyline being told throughout the series, and it was expanded even further through multi-part episodes. In my opinion, that is no small feat for a Saturday morning cartoon. Now let's shift back to Norm. Norm had a long list of voice acting credits, and once the guy landed a role, he tended to keep it. Aside from Cyclops, he got to reprise that role on the 94 animated X-Men, excuse me, Spider-Man series. He also got to play Cyclops in several X-Men video games. He also voiced Drax the Destroyer in the 1998 Silver Surfer cartoon, and he had roles on The Busy World of Richard Scarry, and had a long-standing role as Billy Blazes, the lead on The Rescue Heroes. They always save the day! Now, I never watched The Rescue Heroes. It was a bit after my time, but I remember hearing the commercial, and that jingle would get stuck in my head all the time. In addition to his voice work, Norm also had several live-action roles. He was on such series and TV movies as Majority Rules, Cradle of Lies, Crash and Burn, and Due South. Now, one of the things I think is interesting about Norm is that he's a bit different from his character of Cyclops. Now, don't get me wrong, I love Cyclops. Psych's a great guy, but Psych, well, the man has a bit of a tendency to be a stick in the mud. (laughs) He is all business and little or no play, but uh, Norm doesn't seem like that kind of guy. Let me read you what his fellow voice actors from the X-Men animated series had to say about him. I'm going to read a tweet first from Cal Dodd. You can follow him on Twitter at RealCalDodd. Cal was the voice of Wolverine on that series. He says, lost my dear friend and cohort Norm Spencer. What a sad day. Norm was the voice of Cyclops on X-Men the animated series. He was a genuine character and sweetheart. I will miss you, Psych. Sorry about the convertible, bub. See you later, my friend. The convertible was such a funny, funny sequence in that series. Go back and watch it. I believe it's in one of the earlier episodes if you've not seen it. Wolverine! Tell Cyclops I made him a convertible. I'm also going to read a tweet from Lenore Zahn. Lenore was the voice of Rogue on that series. And uh, I was surprised to learn she was Canadian and not actually from the South. So good job on pulling off that Southern Belle type accent. But she includes a link to a YouTube interview that Norm gave. And she says, love this interview with Norm. His humor was always so self-deprecating. Our pal would have loved to see him again shared some stories about our show, and laughed with him and at Real Cal Dodd about the Jumbotron. Hashtag Gene Get Down. Hashtag RIP Norm Spencer. So, all that being said, Norm, 
I raise my glass to you tonight. Thanks for being the voice of my head when I think about Cyclops. For shouting optic blast at me whenever I play an X-Men video game. And for showing me what a good leader looks like. As Vic would say, we dim the lights in the auditorium. Greetings, fans of all things, both pop culture and retro. Earl Green here. Lamenting the fact that... It's been 42 years since 1978, and that means I am now well into year 42 of my lamentable lack of a Milton Bradley Starbird. That being the amazing, completely unconnected to any TV show or movie toy spacecraft that came out in 1978 that made all sorts of noises, all sorts of laser firing sounds. You could take it apart and reconfigure it, and... The the brilliant thing about the Starbird was it was aerodynamic and yet functional looking. You know, kind of the middle ground between, you know, all of the fancy aerodynamic space fighters in Star Wars and the Eagle from Space 1999. Now here's something interesting. The inventor of the Milton Bradley Starbird was a guy named Bing McCoy, who then turned around in 1979 and invented another popular toy with electronic light and sound features, Rom the Space Knight. So, that kind of blows my mind and I want you I want your mind to be blown too. So contemplate this possibility. Is there a Bing McCoy cinematic universe just waiting to happen here? Is the Starbird piloted by Rom the Space Knight? Is he sitting in there making his funky breathing noises while the Starbird's making all of its pew-pew laser noises? Just something to consider from 1978. By the way, if you've got a Starbird that you really don't want anymore, you know where to find me. Starbird, a product of space-age technology created by MB Electronics. Stand by for final test. Starbird sensors trick a micro-circuitry to generate the matching sounds of climbing. Level off. Descend. Fire laser guns. That does it. Thank you. Starbird from MB Electronics. Give your child a look at tomorrow today. Command base and launching pad sold separately. Hello, listeners, or should I say, attention shoppers. at the fashion boutique. A few weeks ago, I was at Target and spotted was, quite frankly, one of my greatest nostalgic finds. Okay, not totally nostalgic, but nostalgic in modern day clothes. This is the big one. A board game I played as a nine-year-old and loved, but hadn't had the opportunity to play again. One that has always stuck with me as well as the friends I played it with so many years ago. I found the mall with it all in the board game section of my local Target. Ah, you got your credit card? Yeah! It's mall madness. Sale at the shoe store. The new shop till you drop game that really talks. Sale at the fashion boutique. It's all the fun of a shopping spree. With mall madness, you get it all. A bank account and your own credit card. Sarah at the sunglass boutique. Mall madness really talks. To win, buy everything on your list and be first out of the mall. I win! Attention mall shopping. Mall madness, the electronic shopping game that really talks. From Milton Bradley, it's the mall with it all. Released by Hasbro Games this year, because of course, something good had to happen in 2020, this updated version retains the trappings of the coolest shopping mall trip you've ever taken. Charge cards, your shopping list, Mall Madness Cash, the kitchen store, the music store, and copious trips to the ATM. This mall still has it all, even with the updates. I'm not about Attention, mall shoppers. It's Mall Madness, the talking shop to you drop game. Fail at the fashion boutique. Catch on, man. 
have my own credit card. It's small no deposit. $100. Always draws. First out of the mall with all their stuff wins. I was born. I loaded batteries into my customer service ATM credit card machine fountain hybrid, built the mall's two floors, and chose players to tackle their shopping list. Because in times of pandemic, you figure out creative ways to play a two to four player game solo. The experience is exactly what I remember from 28 years ago. Sales, clearances, purchasing six items on your list, and trying to get out of the mall. You play as Gwen, Sage, Avery, or Dax, because boys have been added to the shopping fun, and follow the prompts given by the Talking Customer Service ATM credit card machine fountain hybrid. I'm happy to report that I've played this game three times since I purchased it, and it was fun each time. In fact, two of those times were back to back. I couldn't help it. The thrill of the hunt for the giant chocolate unicorn, clearance sale priced at $75, was too tempting. I couldn't resist. The game looks as good as the original, sets up nicely, and still feels like a cool early 1990s shopping mall, even with the modernizations made. If you like the mall and love board games that, as I said, retain all the trappings of nostalgia despite being given a modern facelift, this one will be your new old favorite. Don't let the ages 9 and up fool you. This is a game for big kids and kids at heart, too. The biggest updates to the game are some of the store names. There's a store called Yas Queen. Two of the players are boys, because boys like malls too. The types of items you can purchase, giant chocolate unicorn and giant water gun have replaced the tape recorder and the parrot. And the charge cards have RFID chips in them. You'll still make a million trips to the ATM though. I love my own credit card. The sound quality on the device is much better than the original. No kithin to be heard. And when you win, you get the thrilling satisfactory of your car starting and a victory song on the radio. Of course, Target is not the only place you can find this game. It is available on Amazon for $26.99, same price as Target, and is in stock. It really is the mall with it all! For more nostalgic goodness, you can find me over on my blog, Allison's Written Words, as well as Pop Culture Retrorama, and on Twitter at Allison Geeks Out. For Pop Culture Retrorama, this is Allison Preston. And friends, that wraps up this preview episode for the second season of the Pop Culture Retrorama podcast. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to give us a listen. I also want to thank my fellow Pop Culture Retrorama colleagues, such as Ashley Thomas, a.k.a. The Nerdy Blogger. She's been blogging about the nerd life since 2010 on her own blog at nerdyblogging.wordpress.com. She's a contributor to the Pop Culture Retrorama site and famegirlish.com. You can reach Ashley on Twitter at The Nerdy Blogger and on Facebook at slash The Nerdy Blogger. Earl Green, besides being a frequent writer on the Pop Culture Retrorama site, shares his many geek and pop culture passion projects at thelogbook.com. Furthermore, the music you heard at the beginning and ending of our show is courtesy of Earl Green's thelogbook.com, kindly used with his permission. Rockford J can be found every single day sharing his love of the horror genre on the Saturday Frights Facebook page. And Allison Preston can be found on the Pop Culture Retrorama site, Facebook, and her own spot on the internet at Allison's Written Words. I will naturally be sharing links to each of my fellow contributors on the podcast post over on the Pop Culture Retrorama site. For what it's worth, you can generally find me writing multiple times a day on the site. If you want to check it out, you can go to www.popcultureretrorama.com. 
In addition to that site, I also am contributing daily on the Facebook page for this site, as well as the Diary of an Arcade Employee and Saturday Frights Facebook page too. If you have any comments or maybe a suggestion for a future episode, you can contact me at vicsagepopculture at gmail.com. The Pop Culture Retrorama podcast is available on iTunes and Google Play, as well as Spotify and Stitcher. If you like the show, why not help us attract new listeners by leaving us a review, a rating, and subscribing. Help spread the word about the show with your friends and fellow pop culture aficionados. As always, I want to personally thank The Retroist, who for nearly 10 years allowed me to share my love of all things retro, including creating podcasts like this one and more. And friends, until the second season of the Pop Culture Retrorama podcast officially begins, we hope you enjoy the new direction for the podcast. This has been a Pop Culture Retrorama podcast. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. The Pop Culture Retrorama podcast is not affiliated with or authorized by Hanna-Barbera, Queen, or any of the businesses and individuals that have been mentioned in the show. All music and sound clips are the property of the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purpose of review, criticism, and commentary only, and are not intended to infringe. The prehistoric monster the Japanese call Godzilla has just walked out of Tokyo Bay. He's as tall as a 30-story building.